The hungry ghost sailed over the land, howling as loudly as it could. But the sound that issued out of its tiny pinhole mouth was little more than a whisper. There was a reason the ghost was here, but that reason had long been forgotten. Now there was no room for thought in its existence. Everything was erased by the immediacy of hunger. Somewhere else, a woman was dying. Sam did not know she could die. She knew other people could die. Her ex-husband had gone close a few times, leaning back in his lawn chair, booze dazed and heat dazzled, convulsing in sharp, shuddering seizures she'd not believed his soft body capable of. Peter's death had been a constant dark shadow at the edges of Sam's universe. She had dreaded it and anticipated it simultaneously. She'd been married to an alcoholic, and so that was what she'd done. She'd woken up every morning and asked herself, is he going to drink himself to death today? Sam had been so caught up in sick fantasies of Peter's death that she never thought about her own, not in a conscious way at least. Mortality hit Sam like that, in a flash of light on the night she might have been happiest. The rain that fell from the sky was as slick as the oil beneath her tires, and the steering wheel was wrenched from her hands. Her car skittered up the hill into the left lane. She tried to bear right, but the semi came barreling down, its headlights too bright to be real. It was the noise that hung in Sam's mind the longest, long after the brilliance of the headlights had faded away and everything had stilled. The blare of the semi's horn, and then silence. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. I used to have a guest speaker come visit my high school classes in Columbia, Missouri, who was a Tibetan Buddhist monk. He would wear his robes and do a presentation and question and answer with my students and tell them stories about his monastic life, the Dalai Lama, and the intricacies of Tibetan Buddhism. He would discuss how it was similar and different from other Buddhist practices, and the students always loved him. One of the aspects that always captured their attention was the realms of existence. These realms are the heavenly, the asuras, the hell realm, the animal realm, the human realm, and the realm of the hungry ghosts. As you heard in the opening reading by Delina Storm, today's topic of conversation features a novel with the imagery of a hungry ghost inspired by Buddhism's realms. The Hungry Ghost, which is the title of Storm's new novel, is the topic of this very fun conversation. So Storm's book, The Hungry Ghost, is about a hungry ghost who escapes from a dark realm into the human world, and it enters the unconscious body of a woman named Sam. A review from Kirkus states, Storm's symbolic treatment of unrequited lust is both page-turning and full of surprises. A review from Booklist states, More than just a terrifying take on the possession trope, it is also an intimate look at our connection to loved ones that includes an LGBTQ-positive frame and lots of rescue cats. So, when Sam appears to miraculously awaken from her accident-induced coma, the hungry ghost plays a substantial role, and Sam's lesbian lover, alcoholic ex-husband, 
and well-meaning family must come together to try to stop the ghost from devouring everything about the Sam they know. This book has so many fantastic surprises, from Buddhism to love to possession to horror. I really loved this book, and in this conversation, Delina and I avoid spoilers. So Delina Storm is a writer and educator. Her undergraduate training at Williams College was in Asian studies with a religious studies concentration, and her experiences in the study and practice of various religious and spiritual traditions, as well as her travels throughout Asia, Europe, influence much of her writing. She has an MFA in fiction from Bennington College, where she participated in a number of workshops that combine the study of fiction and nonfiction. She teaches a winter study course at Williams College called How to Write Autofiction. She is the author of The Hungry Ghost, out from Black Spot Books, an imprint of Vesuvian Media Group. You can find her work on Twitter at Delina Storm or online at DelinaStorm.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Classical underscore Ideas or at Patreon.com slash Classical Ideas Podcast. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation on The Hungry Ghost with Delina Storm. Delina Storm, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you so much, Greg. So I'm very excited to be here today. Uh, This is the first podcast that I've ever been on. So in that sense, this definitely feels like an honor and a special thing to be on your very excellent um, Classical Ideas podcast, especially since you don't usually do fiction. So thank you. Ah, that is so delightful to hear. I'm so glad that I could be the first one. That is just wonderful. Thank you for yeah. telling me that. Um, how can you uh, can you just spend a moment and introduce yourself to the audience, however you see fit? Yes, absolutely. So um, let's see. I am a 32 year old writer who lives in Williamstown, Massachusetts, with my husband and my 19 month old daughter. I am originally from Oregon, from a uh, small town outside of Portland. Uh, it's actually not so small anymore. It's grown a lot in recent years. Um, McMinnville, Oregon, where it's kind of right in the middle of wine country. Um, And I moved out this way originally for college and then kind of thought about going and living other places, but eventually ended up settling here uh, with my husband who works at Williams College. So we're both here now, thanks to the university. Um, That's, yeah, here we are. Awesome. Well, and you've got a fantastic new novel out that we're going to talk about today called The Hungry Ghost. But before we get into the book itself, I kind of want to hear a little bit about your uh, origins within writing. How did you come to be interested in writing as a professional pursuit? Yeah. So I think there are definitely a few different ways that I could answer this question. And I feel like, you know, all writers out there, like from what I've heard, they have this answer that is the like how I came to writing answer. And it always was when they were really little. So I'm going to go ahead and give my version of that. Uh, So the first, you know, book, we'll call it a book that I wrote was when I was five and it was called Ponyland. And it was uh, for a school assignment and I wrote and illustrated this thing. And it was about the story of this young pony who always heard stories about this mystical land that her parents had told her about that was called Ponyland, where everything was supposed to be good. Um, and and this girl, like, you know, disaster strikes as always kind of happens. Um, and there was an ecological disaster and the fields that her family lived in burned and she got separated 
separated from them and had to go find her own way through the dangerous forests and encounter strange and scary things. And then when she got out the other side, she discovered that she'd found Ponyland and she found her parents. <laughs> and this was a, a, a little miniature book that I uh, wrote myself and my teacher, I remember in kindergarten, was just really enthusiastically praised this effort and uh, encouraged me to be a writer. Mm -hmm. And I think that was probably the first, you know, outside of the house sort of encouragement of my creative literary arts that I got. Lovely. And uh, and, and that kind of thing kind of sticks with you. Yeah. Now, I, I also, however, I think that as a five-year-old, I was interested in being a ballerina, and I didn't become a ballerina. And so there's also something about writing that continued to compel me right throughout my life um, that some of the other arts that I was also interested in didn't end up becoming professions. And so, so I think that that writing above and beyond the other arts that have all been deeply influential on me in my life. Uh, was probably the most profoundly transformative. I think that, you know, all all arts, I, creative arts are just an amazing and kind of a magical thing, right? People come up with something and they put it out into the world and then it begins to kind of influence and change the world in different ways. And I just love that art has that ability, right? That we as humans are able to produce these almost mystical things that go out there and then they like live these lives in the world and transform it. And so uh, with books, right? I grew up in a working class background um, my dad had been, his origins were, were even, I'd say, you know, was, were actually poor. Um, and so he kind of worked his way up through a lot of hard work to actually become someone who worked in a well-off business. And then kind of eventually, by the time I was graduating from college, became a business owner himself. But the world that I was exposed to as a child uh, was very different. And I realized this more and more from some of the worlds that I was reading about in the fiction that I was being exposed to both in school and in just my own like literary interests, what I liked reading. And I thought that, you know, one of the amazing things about fiction is that you read this world and the characters might be made up and the world even might be made up, but there's this way in which you really believe in it. And I felt like I got to see these glimpses of a reality that I both knew was true, right? I mean, the things I was reading were novels, but they were set in, oh, let's say the East Coast and in Japan and in India. I was very interested in in travel fiction. And I, I, I knew that I was seeing other parts of the world that were just so different from the world that I knew and that I really wanted to go and see. Mm, totally. And so I felt like... I mean, I think I can credit uh, a lot of the novels that I read, a lot of the books that I read to why I eventually even decided to go to college, right? Like, I mean, that was a drive that I had for a long time. And I ended up going as a first generation college student. And I have traveled the world and I've gone to Asia and spent time in Japan and in India. And I think that I don't know that I would have done those things had it not been for the worlds that I glimpsed through books originally. And then I got to kind of go and experience myself. And mm. so getting to kind of live through that, right, to be someone who's from a certain place, and who doesn't necessarily know how to go anywhere else, but to then see doors open for them, like through the act of reading, 
I felt like I wanted to be able to take part in that myself, like to be able to write books that can like open doors for people that can help them to see like, you know, here's another way to think about reality. Here's another world that could exist. Like how, how do you go into that? I could not have said that any better myself because I feel exactly the same way about all the things that I've read. You know, like you read like <laughs> Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie in India, yeah. or you read like Wind Up Bird Chronicle by Murakami in Japan, or you read like Master Margarita in like Soviet Russia. Like you're seeing yeah. glimpses of the world through literature. I mean, it is it is like the world's most relaxing form of travel. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And exciting at the same time, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, what were some of the books that were like mostly inspiring you at that at that formative age? Let's see. Okay. So, um, yes, uh, I'd say I, I'm going to go back to high school uh, because I know you know this is a kind of a, a, a religious and classical ideas podcast, and so so as a, as a, as a child, I. Um, wonderfully, amazingly grew up in a non-religious household, but one in which my parents were very open to me looking into religion. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I mean, really, what a, what a cool experience to get to have. Uh, and, and so I, I had a lot of questions and I was able to kind of like go out and, you know, if I wanted to, I could go to Catholic uh, church with, with other relatives that I had, or I could go to, to the Mormon church with some friends that I had. And I did those things and I checked out those experiences. And um, I found them very interesting. I found certain elements of them to be quite compelling. Uh, but I didn't feel myself like, uh, so, so gung ho that I wanted to go and get baptized. Mm, yes. Um, and then, you know, again, back to the reading, right in, in high school, we got to this, um, to, to, to reading s some books that were like Sartre, right. And like some kind of nihilism and grappling with these ideas of like, well, what if, what if there is no meaning? And, and I remember like this period of time when I just kind of was like, well, what, yeah, what if that's what it is? You know, why, why am I like looking into these different religions when possibly it's all just like meaningless. And, <laughs> and I was kind of adrift in that, you know, existential void for a little while. Uh, and then, <laughs> like, I, I really appreciate the, the the reading list that my high school teachers laid out because, like, I kind of went through that. And then they gave me Siddhartha oh. by Herman Hesse. Yeah. And I just felt like I got saved. Like, my soul kind of, like, was alive again after I got this book. Um, I, I was like, ah, this this is my Bible, right? Like, I don't, I don't need any of those other books you know, things that I'd been looking at before, like this seems to me to be like the way that I need to go. Um, and that was my first introduction to Buddhism was through Siddhartha and Hermann Hesse. And so after that, I became a huge Hermann Hesse fan. And I mean, I'd say all of his books have been meaningful to me in different ways. Nice. Um, well, that, that yeah. kind of like leads in a nice uh, discussion to leading into your book, the Hunger Ghost. So yeah. I'm, a, I'm a high school religious studies teacher. I do this show for fun. I love yeah. doing this because I get to have great conversations like this. And like, I'm kind of familiar with the realms of Tibetan Buddhism from my yeah. classes that I've taught. And you have a book titled after one of the realms within yeah. Tibetan Buddhism. How did you come to be interested in the concept of the realms within Tibetan Buddhism? And maybe you want to say like a little bit about how you found that and like what they are and like why, uh, how you got there. Yeah. So first thought is um, reincarnation. Mm. 
So, so this is this is an idea that's uh, not unique to only Tibetan Buddhism. You know, there are definitely other world systems, uh, religions out there that that believe in reincarnation. But uh, specific to Tibetan Buddhism is the idea of the realms within which a sentient being can become reincarnated, right? And I felt really interested in trying to tell what amounts to a kind of a reincarnation story. Mm. And I was so I was interested in thinking about, okay, so you know, you can be born as a human, you could be born as an animal, and those are more or less easy to imagine. But then there are the other things that you could be born as that we don't normally see, right? There are um, gods, and there are like, hell beings, and there are hungry ghosts, or mm. preta, as they're more traditionally called. And, um, and so I was I was interested in trying to explore like a non-traditional possession story, yeah. one, one that takes for granted the existence of the Tibetan Buddhist cosmology, right? Because I think that a lot of possession stories, they have this sort of already internalized idea of like, okay, what's possible in the world? How do spirits exist? How does possession take place? And I wanted to look at that from kind of a different perspective through my own, you know, background and, and, and training and study of Buddhism and to say, well, you know, what if, what if we take for granted the existence of these other realms and these other beings? And, and the truth is that, that hungry ghosts don't come into the human realm and possess humans as the one in my story does. But I felt like I was okay to do that within the realms of a work of fiction, especially because I feel like it, it's only made possible by the fact that Madeline, right, the yeah. one of the main characters is herself writing the book within the book that allows this to happen. And so it's it's definitely, I, I, it's kind of like I said earlier about books opening doors. I felt like I was, you know, do, doing something creative here, trying to open a door and allow something to happen in the world that normally wouldn't happen because I was interested in, in connecting, yeah, this idea of different realms into our own more traditionally Western idea of, of what reality is, right? So it takes place in Boston. The characters are, you know, mostly white, uh, but still there's this other things that happen that that don't look like a lot of the traditional stories that some of us might have been told. Mm, yes. Well, and in the beginning of the book, I noticed that you have a, I, I'm paying attention to all these like small details as I'm going through. And yeah. I always like the way that uh, authors dedicate their work because it's unique and so personal to the person. Sometimes it's very simple, such as saying for, uh, you know, Michelle or for mom. Um, but you have like a very intriguing um, introduction or uh, dedication in the book. It's uh, Thank you. dedicated to all beings, ghouls, ghosts, witches, fish, mice. And then you end by saying, all who simply can't decide what life is for or why we're born, may you find shelter from the storm. Can you tell me a little bit about what this uh, dedication means to you and how you came to develop this? Yes, absolutely. Um, thank you. I, I like this dedication a lot as well. So I pay a lot of attention to dedications when I'm reading books, and I especially like it if I feel like I am personally implicated uh, in the dedication. And so I think I was maybe most inspired um, by Herman Hesse's dedication uh, in, of the Glass Speed Game, which was to all the journeyers to the East, 
And I remember when I read that, like I both sort of felt like I was myself included because I'd already read some Hesse and I kind of, kind of felt like I knew what that was about. But I also felt like I was invited to be included, right? Like even if I were not at that point myself, one of these journeyers, I could be, right? This book could be for me. And so, so I like that it was both specific, but also like not so specific that it was, you know, including or excluding specific individuals. Um, and so, so yeah, so, 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 so this, this dedication is, I was kind of trying to think about, you know, again, like with all the different realms of reincarnation, there's, there's the ghouls out there and the ghosts. Um, and then the, then the way that it ends, right. Uh, may you find shelter from the storm. So my last name is storm. Yeah. Um, I share this with my husband. It's a joint last name that we both chose together when we got married. So I was formerly frost. He was formerly Josephson and we chose for ourselves a new name. And, and there are multiple reasons that we chose the name storm, but the one that I'm kind of invoking here is, is the idea of a kind of samsara or cyclic existence, right? This universe that we live in as having a kind of stormy nature, right? Where everything is subject to change. Nothing is permanent and it can seem really sort of riotous and chaotic, but there's calm and stillness in the center of the storm, right? In the eye of the storm. Mm. And that's something and, that everybody experiences too. Yeah. You know, right. I mean, and especially now, you know, we're talking in a very strange time in our world. Yes. So yeah. I'm a big music fan and I get the impression that you are too. And so, yeah, nice. So, um, <laughs> and I mean, even in the characters, you describe one of the characters, uh, Sam, as like punk rock. And I'm like, yes, this is great. Um, so yeah. b before we dive into the story, I want to know a little bit more about the role that music plays for you. So like Bowie is prominent in the story. And I listened to the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust this morning. And it was just yeah. so perfect. I was like, I need to start this day for this, with this conversation with Ziggy Stardust. So I did. It's an amazing album. Yeah. I know. I, yeah. And then, uh, and then Guns N' Roses shows up. And then Michael Jackson shows up. Um, what role does music play for you as a writer? That's such a good question. So music was always kind of my second alternate career path. Um I was really close to pursuing a career as a music therapist, actually. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah. I, I, writing and music were my my dominant twin creative passions throughout my life. Um, and so there's a, there, there, you know, it, it's, it's so hard, right, to pick and choose career paths and like arts. And, and it doesn't mean that you have to give one up, but it does have to kind of take a back seat. And so... Like there, there are things that, that music did for me that writing, like I, I try and try to have writing fulfill those same things. And I think one of them is performing, you know, like there's, there's a way in which you get to share your energy very personally, like when you're on stage with people, um, that like writing is almost the opposite of, right? Mm. You never get to see the people that you're communicating with unless maybe you're doing a reading. Um, but so I guess, uh, you know, by, by using musical references, some throughout the writing, there's this way in which you can at least share that musical experience with your readers. And, 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 um, and there's a way in which I think I, I pay a lot of attention to the rhythm of sentences as well and the sort of musicality of language as I'm writing. I try to always read out loud and think about the way that, that 
things are sounding. Um, even when I'm writing sometimes, you know, it's, it's almost a practice of listening really. And, and you almost hear things, at least I almost hear them sometimes as like a, a rhythm more than you necessarily hear the words, right? You just kind of get this feeling and that feeling is something that then you need to sort of capture. And then like the words kind of like come down over it and, and create the form, uh, which is maybe a, a bit outside of what you were asking, but, um, but, you know, but, but music has, has been really, really big for me. And I, I definitely think about music and about rhythm and about feeling and how to kind of, transfer that through the art as I'm writing. Well, and I totally get it too. And I'm a drummer. So like, I know what it mm -hmm. feels like to be in complete, like uh, in complete connection and communion with the other people that are either in the room or on the stage with you where everything just sounds right and feels right. And, you know, it's just sweaty and hot and like the energy is amazing and it feels so good. So I know exactly what you mean. It's just like, it's, it's a blissful moment. Yeah, it is. And so I hope <laughs> that I can do that with my books too, you know, even though I guess it's, well, you know, hey, it's very appropriate for social distancing, right? Absolutely. You don't actually get to be <laughs> in the same room with the people that you're sort of performing for and you sort of perform in silence, but then the, 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 you know, it, it, it takes its form in as people read it right in yeah. silence still, but, but, but they, they experience it. So this book features a, so I'm a teacher. So this was an interesting uh, realization for me. This book features mm -hmm. quite a forbidden <laughs> social taboo of mm -hmm. a woman teacher and a student being romantically interested in each other. Tell me a little bit about this writing decision. Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely think that there are reasons for there to be taboos about certain relationships, right? I mean, um, I think that it's, it's worth noting that, that the that there is that power dynamic in their relationship, but it's in the form of a, a writing residency, which is different from, for example, like typical university setting, right? Oh, true, so it's, yes. it's a, you know, it's a short term thing. It was like a semester or ish experience, uh, you know, a, a term. And so, um, so then once that's finished, it's, they go their separate ways. And I think, you know, that, that actually influences part of some of, um, Sam's reticence about beginning the relationship, right? But what I think I was exploring was also almost a reversal of what is more of a Me Too-ish phenomenon, right? Where the person who has power is kind of using it to influence the person who doesn't. Mm -hmm. Where Madeline, right, is the student, but then she's the one who's really sort of insistent on wanting to seek out the relationship. And so there's this weird, it's like, it's not the one that the, the, the version of the story that we usually expect. Um, and, and I think, you know, it doesn't come to full fruition. They, they, you know, things, things maybe start to happen, but they don't actually, go farther than that well ever yeah <laughs> right yeah <laughs> that's kind of the, uh, the 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 thing of the book is is this this way in which it feels like things are starting and then there's this constant continual interruption and so part of that interruption was probably the 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 taboo right at the beginning the teacher and student well it can't happen now so okay so then once they once that's done maybe it can happen then but then okay they're living in different places so it can't happen now and there's this other stuff going on and so it's like well when does it ever happen um the book is about trying to find 
that opportunity. Well, okay. So we have these main characters. So we have Sam, a 32-year-old writing teacher. We have Madeline, a 26-year-old, you know, burgeoning writer in her own regard. Madeline is is very um, enamored with Sam. And Sam is also enamored with Madeline. But they just can't get on the same page. Yeah. And Sam is also getting divorced from and is divorced from an alcoholic ex-husband named Peter who plays prominently in the story as well. And so I'm thinking about these characters and I feel like you're discussing um, beauty in a way and (laughs) perceptions of beauty within our society because something that stopped me and gave me pause is Sam her inner monologue of trying to talk herself out of dating Madeline. Mm-hmm. She's too old. She's not hot enough. She isn't wearing enough makeup. So you offer this notion of beauty mattering a lot to this 32 year old who is not old, <laughs> you know? Talk- so, <laughs> totally true. Yeah. Yes. So talk. And she's like, she's like, she's like, I have a few gray hairs. Well, it, you know what I mean? So she's really <laughs> beating herself up. And I'm curious if you can talk to me a little bit about creating this inner monologue of beauty for the female lead character. Yeah. So, you know, this is a this is an interesting moment for Sam, the the one that you've signaled out where where exactly she's sort of being really self-disparaging. She's sort of beating herself up, like you said. Um, she's kind of looking for her flaws. And I think that what's going on in this passage is that Sam is anticipating, right? A lot of criticism that she thinks she's going to receive from Madeline because Madeline, like when we see her later, we see that she kind of presents herself in this very particular way. She's got like uh, ruby earrings and nail polish and she seems kind of done up and like, she's maybe very aware of herself and, you know, trying to present this very put together image of herself. And I think that maybe because of that, Sam is anticipating that, you know, Madeline is going to be like critiquing her, right? With this, with this kind of fierce gaze, with this like, oh, you know, you're not wearing a lot of makeup, but like, but maybe Madeline is. And and you know, maybe, maybe, you know, since she's like a couple years older, she's got a gray hair and Madeline doesn't. And so maybe that's going to stand out. And I think that that this is something that, you know, not only women, but like we all kind of face when we're getting to meet someone and and for whatever reason we worry that they're going to be looking at us with these particular criticisms in mind. And then, you know, what happens, which I think you were going to mention but I'll just go ahead and say is is that you know, Sam is clearly beautiful to Madeline regardless yes. of what Sam is worried about. And so I think that that's what I was 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 noting, right? The ways that we can like spend a lot of time beating ourselves up, looking at these little things that might seem really evident to us and that, you know, we kind of worry that someone else is gonna like be concerned with too. And then, you know, luckily that's not always the case. Sometimes it's it's the opposite, right? Sometimes someone is actually seeing the best in us. So hopefully this is maybe a reminder of that. Well yeah, and um so Madeline is also very concerned about impressing Sam. So I think that yeah. Madeline is also worried that Sam, the professor, the teacher, the well put together adult, yeah. I feel like she is also trying to impress her because she's like, you know, Buddhism and spirituality pops up throughout the story. And Madeline's like, I'm going to my meditation group. Yeah. So, you know, with the title, The Hungry Ghost, were you conscious of sort of weaving this little religion motif throughout the book because of the title? 
Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, which is why, I mean, you know, I, I didn't like tell you to put me on your podcast, but I think it's so appropriate that you did because, Yay. you know, <laughs> there's, there's really, there's a very strong, um, yeah, religion motif throughout this and, and, um, yeah, right. I, I hope that there's, you know, I'm interested in exploring inner transformations, right? So there is definitely a transformation that this book maybe maybe literal <laughs> and maybe metaphorical uh accomplishes i hope by the end um but yeah awesome you know and something that struck me as as well is how many relationships across time will fail and have failed because two people just can't get on the same page like there's always an imbalance of desire or effort or scheduling or other banal minutia so yeah. like Sam and Madeline just can't like get it together as a couple. So you have like these two people who just like can't get on the same page. But this is like relevant for relationships across like all cultures and languages, isn't it? Um yes, sure. I mean so, it's, yeah, it's like something that like every person who reads it is probably going to be like, "Oh yeah, I remember that one time when this happened to me." Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, so I think it's a struggle that we can all identify with, right? That that's happened to all of us in different ways. And I like that you keep so noting that that the problem is that they can't get on the same page. Because, you know, that's, that's, again, one of those like, oh, metaphorical, literal things that where, you know, Madeline is the writer, and then she writes this book called The Hungry Ghost, or she's trying to. Um, and, and her attempt is more or less right to try to get her and Sam onto the same page. Uh, yeah. And it's this you know, ultimately kind of a, a futile a, a attempt, but she she works at it really hard and, and is kind of trying to explore all the ways and reasons for which it doesn't work, right? And, and I think that the book it does kind of like get through all these different pieces of their relationship and their life and like what is it that's keeping them apart and kind of goes through them all. So I want to go to the ghost story that Madeline writes and we were kind of chatting about this via email but like so this reminds me whenever I'm reading one of my favorite books is The Master and Margarita by, Haru by uh, Mikhail Bulgakov and yeah. in that book there's this character who's a novelist named The Master, and he's writing a novel about Pontius Pilate's relationship <laughs> with Jesus during the time when Jesus was on trial. And it is so amazing because you don't learn until like halfway into the book that the master is the one writing the book within mm -hmm. the book. Love that. Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so like whenever I was whenever I realized that Madeline was writing the book within your book, right. I was like, Yes. I, I mean, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was so all about it because that is one of my favorite writing styles. I just love it. So yeah. In the ghost. Too. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. So let's go to the ghost in Madeline in Madeline's story. So Madeline's like jolted by this motivation to write. And I know that feeling. You know that feeling. The story has to come out. You know, those those great moments of writing where it just flows out. Mm -hmm. So she writes during this insatiable hunger and lust for Sam. Tell me about this ache that Madeline feels uh, where she is like insatiably hungry for this person that she just can't have. Yes, exactly. No, thank you for this question. This puts it so well. I mean, Madeline is, she is possessed, right, by lust for Sam, right? I think that's that's kind of the starting point of the book. Madeline is herself possessed. She's insatiable. She's just wants her so much, right? 
Um, and she's grappling with this. And in order to exercise herself, like this, this, this thing from herself, right? She needs to create something external. So she creates the hungry ghost. I mean, she doesn't create it. She finds it, right? Because it already exists out there. It's already in this, the, the universe. It's in its realm. But, um, but, but, but she locates the particular one, right? That is manages to stand in for, for her so that she kind of gets her lust outside of herself, right? Mm, for a little yes. while so she can look at it. And then she, you know, she does this really kind of terrible thing where she just lets it go after Sam. Mm. <laughs> she just lets it loose, right? And I think that that what we watch happen throughout the book is 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 the the what happens when Madeline just has her way in a way with Sam, um, and the sorts of terrible things that happen, and how you know, the only way for, for, for Madeline to escape the lust that she's feeling is to externalize it. And then the only way for that to eventually end is for that ghost to also then be exercised. And I won't give away the ending, mm. but that's very much like what the book is about. It's kind of like this grappling with lust. That's like just all consuming to the point of being destructive, right? It's only, it's just, it's, it, it, it becomes its own possessive force. Yeah. Right? And I think that a lot of people would be able to, you know, if they're honest with themselves, um, realize moments in their own lives where they felt that way. Yeah. You know, I hope so. Yeah. So <laughs> I have, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so she writes about this ghost and this ghost is like starving. And I love the portrayals of this ghost until the ghost like freaked me out big time. So I mm -hmm. went from being like amused by the ghost to being mm -hmm. totally freaked out. Yeah. So the ghost is starving and it hasn't had sustenance in a long time. Yeah. And so tell me a little bit about how you set up this like insatiable ghost looking for some way to feed. Because this ghost is like suffering before it latches into Sam's vaca vacated body when she's in a coma. Yeah. Um, and then I'm also curious how this was inspired by stories of hungry ghost realms within Tibetan Buddhism. Yeah. So, you know... I wonder if you know any more uh, specific hungry ghost stories from Tibetan Buddhism know. than I do. I have found them. I, I read a lot of books about Tibetan Buddhism, and I, I run across the occasional mentions of hungry ghosts, but but there have been not a lot of concrete examples, uh, which was part of why the ghost in, in, in this novel makes its way out of its realm and into the human realm, because I just you know, didn't feel like there was, I, I had enough, uh, like, research material to kind of feel like I could fully portray that realm very yeah. well. Um, you know, so, so I know, I know what the hungry ghosts are typically portrayed as looking like, right? I mean, there, there are different variations of them, but then they they, they often have these very distended bellies, like starving children, basically. Um, and they have these very, very tiny mouths and, and like, you know, maybe like tiny long necks also. So it's like, you know, they, they have a great difficulty actually getting any sustenance in. Um, and then basically they live in these these realms where there is no food or where everything is, you know, made of completely disgusting, vile substances. Um, and so, so yeah, so I, I, I wanted to imagine what that would be like, you know, like it's, it's, it's not a hell realm, I guess, you know, cause technically it isn't, but, but it sure seems pretty hellish when you think about it, um, what it would be like to be living that kind of an existence. And so, so, so yeah, I guess I had to, to kind of meditate on what little imagery I had access to, right? Look at these images of hungry ghosts that I had found and, and, and contemplate starvation, um, 
and, um, you know, dying from thirst in order to kind of think about, okay, so what sort of a mental state is the ghost in when it finally gets for itself the thing that it thinks is going to satisfy it, right? The human body. Mm, yes. So, mm. and and so Sam goes into this coma from this car accident um, and she dis- she figures out how to leave her body to explore the world as like a totally free being, which was yeah. really just a glorious part of the story. I loved it. But when she is out of her body, um, her body is sort of, you know, vacant. There's no yeah. like spirit within it because she's exploring the world almost like in as like a, a spirit ghost herself Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so sam's mom bianca is another character in the story who is trying to hold it all together is my impression um and she seems to have this like ethical dilemma rolling around in her mind of um wondering if sam being in the coma is the right thing um do you have any particular interest in the ethics of life support for like long-term comatose patients as Sam is in the book for quite some time? So I I have definitely been interested in questions of the ethics of life support uh in general for a while. I, in college, I took a class on um, death and dying and in which we thought about the ethics of situations in which people, you know, are, are thinking about, for example, options like assisted suicide for various reasons. And, you know, so what do you do in situations like that? Um, and and so comatose patients, that definitely starts to get into that sort of ethical area. Um, you know, I I don't, I certainly don't have like uh, an answer one way or the other i don't think it's it's ever quite that easy um i don't you think know. it's i don't think it's answerable in a lot yeah. of ways you know it really depends on the person in the moment Exactly. It's it's extremely situation dependent. And there are definitely cases of people waking up from comas, right? And mm. also definitely cases of people not. Um, and sometimes it can happen after a fairly long period of time. And and, and in those cases, it, it's often if not always a, a very gradual process, right? Mm. It's it's not just like, ah, I wake up and I'm fine and I'm jumping out of bed. It's it's more like a, okay, I, I you know, they, they've woken up, but then they need to kind of regain use of all of their limbs and their speech faculties and, and these other things. And, and then hopefully they recover back to the point that they were before. And then some people report having been dreaming, right, during mm. this time. And I don't know that that's a universal experience, but I know that I've at least heard of a number of cases where 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 those are what people say. They say it's like it's like I was in I was living in this different world sort of like I had a different life while I was in the coma and then when I woke up I I came back out of it. Um what so are, I was ex- yeah. yeah, exploring kind of the 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 potential near deathness of that uh, as well. Oh yeah, no, and I was really into that scene as well. And like another thing that you you do, it's like I just spoke a moment ago about Sam leaving her body during her comatose state. So this was super f- interesting because to me, you're like theorizing on the power of the comatose mind. Yeah, because Sam's like living a life inside of her own skull. And then she figures out how to go outside of her body and be completely aware of all of her surroundings. And she has all these powers. So she's comatose, but she's exploring the world. And she realizes just how joyful she feels. She feels free. And 
I found myself wondering if these parts were difficult to write, since it's like hard to know what life is like for comatose people with brain activity. Um, how were you able to concoct these superpowers for Sam while she was comatose? Well, you know, I mean, I, I guess I was thinking about it a lot as being similar to dreaming. Um, and, and so I think, well, there, there are a lot of different ways that we can think about dreaming, right? People yeah. have different theories of what, what in the world it means that, that, that we're dreaming, what's going on, right? What kinds of, what different kinds of dreams are we having? Um, and how are we experiencing those things? And how do we report them afterwards? Um, but I think that, I guess my, my feeling is that often you have dreams and you don't remember them you know, and, and, and sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't. And so I think that part of what Sam is, is experiencing when she's in her coma is, is, is that kind of a dream state that kind of like, okay, so I'm, I'm in REM sleep, I'm having a dream, she goes through it, then she kind of forgets it. And so it's like, nothing's really sticking with her, everything's kind of like there. But then she gets to this other dream state in which she is like, awake, you know, it's, it's like she gets to have an out of body experience, right? And this is not something that I like, get to go do but I, I I read about people who do this sort of thing and I think it's very interesting and so I wanted to allow Sam to kind of escape that cycle of just like sleeping and like forgetting or maybe having like a little bit of control right maybe maybe a little bit of a lucid dream here or maybe not you know and then like kind of keep going but then to like be like okay like I'm actually able to leave my body and like kind of have this dream instead where where, where she has full conscious control of what going on and where she is and so she's able to kind of explore the larger world i loved it because you really got to keep the character active um a character yeah. that you grow to love in the early part of the book and all of a sudden is in a coma and you're like wait we just lost our main character but you, you, you keep her, <laughs> yeah. but you keep Such her going shame. which is so cool <laughs> yeah um so the middle of the book onward takes a decidedly uh creepy tone um yeah. as sam becomes possessed in a way that reminds me like super eerily of like exorcist films from the 70s like so i was like freaked out like reading these last night and yeah. uh was like it was like 11 30 at night and you know mm -hmm. the, the world is like uh, almost possessed with this sickness at the moment in our real world uh, yeah and so like what mindset did you get in to write these like super creepy and unnerving scenes of the book where sam is like racked by possession by this ghost yeah, so I mean, I find it quite interesting and entertaining that this book turned out to be a thriller, because thrillers are not something that I ever had really sought out as reading material for myself. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, I have always been very averse to scary movies, like, you know, The Exorcist, excellent example of something that was just straight up terrifying. <laughs> Like scared me for days, you know. Um, I, I haven't had like a really good tolerance or interest in that sort of like scary material. And so I hadn't planned to to go so far when I wrote this book. Um, but it turns out that that writing about these things is actually a lot less scary than reading about them or than viewing them, I think. Um, I guess you don't feel like you're out of control, maybe, even though as a writer, you you are, you're not 
you shouldn't be fully in control if, if I think if you're doing it well, because you need to be kind of in a sort of a dream state in which things are happening organically and you're not predicting every move before it happens. But, um, but, but, but it surprised me that I was able to write material that was definitely scary without feeling like it was frightening to me. And in that sense, maybe it's even actually therapeutic. And I guess that's, that's what people I think maybe like get out of scary movies anyway, is it's like, Oh, you know, I'm scared, but then it's okay. Mm. Um, and I think maybe like somehow the writing of scary material was able to be more like that for me, you know, like, Oh, I'm, I, I, I've gone through times in my life where, you know, I've had like a lot of nightmares or, um, been very frightened. And I think like the, the, so the fearful material is there already, you know, I mean, I have the nightmares that I can draw on. Um, but I also feel like I'm not scared by them now at this point in my life in the way that I was before. Mm. So so I guess that's I guess that's part of it. You know, it's kind of like nightmare material, like some of our worst fears. Oh, I mean, because that's I think some of the best writing advice I've ever received, actually, which is to write what you're afraid of, you know, mm. like well, whatever you're afraid of, that's what you should write, because that's where the energy is. And so I definitely I guess I went for that with this book. What a massive creative accomplishment. You know, like knowing yeah. sort of like knowing that backstory now, like that must feel like sort of like a creative high, like, whoa, look at what I did. I love that. Yeah, 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 it is. And for, for people who know me, t- too, sometimes they're like, wow, like, whoa, you know, yeah. geez, I, you know, you wrote that. Um, and it's like, yeah, yeah. And, and then it feels good. Yeah. I mean, you got we, we have to uh, people who are like into creating things, you you have to stop and look back and notice moments where you're proud of yourself and the things that you've created, you know? Yeah. Like my wife tells me all the time, she's like, you realize you've been doing a podcast for like three years simply because you love it. You have to consider that as a massive creative accomplishment. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. yeah heck yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we have to remind ourselves of that and like take the time to, to, appreciate that yeah mm. and to be proud of ourselves well i love this book it was such a nice change of pace for me um but it still made me think about things like religion ethics the human condition relationships i'm curious now that i've read your work what the future holds for you and if you have any other creative projects sort of like in the pipeline yes i do uh so i'm currently working on it's a trilogy of Sweet. novels and I am co-writing it with my husband, uh, who is, as you know, um, Jason Storm is a philosopher and historian. And so we are bringing our different creative talents together in order to construct this really interesting fictional series that's set in, again, very um, appropriate to our current times, but a sort of a post-apocalyptic England. Mm. Um, and, and we're, it's called, so the, the trilogy is called child ballads and it is taking, uh, as its inspiration, the, these multi-volume collection of folk stories that are called the child ballads, um, that are set in a medieval setting and they tell stories of like fairies and ghosts and infidelity and murder. And so we've gone through them and we've like kind of rediscovered, uh, different, tales that we want to tell and strung them together into a series of novels. So I am almost done. I'm really, really close to finished with a full draft of the first book. Nice. Um, 
And, and it's really, it's, it's been a lot of fun working together with my husband on this creative project. Uh, it's, I think it's good for us and it's just resulting in something that's completely outside of what I would have been able to write on my own. Um, it's a, this interesting, richly imagined world that my husband, uh, that Jason has, you know, has, has really like done a lot of work to kind of detail. He's got these timelines for like how things happened. Like there's this, you know, collapse. It's kind of, it's partially environmental and it's partially political. And so we're looking at different like forms of catastrophe again, like very present really. Um, and, 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 and also kind of telling these folk stories, um, and giving them these new lives. And so a lot of the stories that we're using are also songs. Awesome. <laughs> so that, that earlier question that you asked about, you know, kind of the relationship with, between music and my work is, is also very relevant to these next books. And so a lot of the chapters, there are songs that go with them that like uh, modern story tellers and uh, songwriters have 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 um, given life to um, the most famous is Scarborough Fair, <laughs> which is originally a child ballad. Um, and that that's one that we use in our books as well. I love the title. Thanks. Awesome. When do you expect those? Are those like a 2021 sort of thing for book one? I hope so. I mean, that that would be an ideal timeline. So, you know, I am hoping that by the end of the summer, we'll be ready to go ahead and start querying agents because I think that, uh, that's, that's a route I want to explore for, for this, for these books. Yeah. Delina, where can people find you if they want to know more about your work? So, um, you can find me on Twitter, uh, Delina storm or on Instagram. Uh, or on um, the Vesuvian page, which is my current publisher. So Black Spot Books, which originally was its own little indie press, is now an imprint of Vesuvian. So um, so you could look for me uh, on their website as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas to talk about The Hungry Ghost. I love the book, and I think that people should check it out, especially if you're wanting to switch up your reading. A lot of my um, listeners are you know, like professors and teachers, and I think that... We all need to, um, you know, take some 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 self care of ourselves at the moment, and I think that this is Absolutely. a really nice novel of uh, and a way to do that. So, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me about it, and I hope that everybody will uh, check out the book too. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Classical Ideas is produced by me. Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening.